Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, building the right strategy for cyber success and capitalizing on the cloud faster. It's Thursday, January 26, 2023. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast, where you'll hear the latest news and trends facing government leaders. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Billy Mitchell. Here's what's happening now. The General Services Administration is rolling out a pilot federal co-working space for hybrid telework. The Workplace Innovation Lab is open to all federal employees and is equipped with cameras for virtual meetings. GSA will use the lab to gather feedback and data as it works to shape the future of work across the federal government. The Government Accountability Office has a new acting chief scientist. Karen Howard will fill the role while GAO conducts a nationwide search for its next permanent chief scientist. Howard previously served as Director of Science and Technology Assessment at GSA. You can read more about these stories and more at fedscoop.com. The four vendors who were awarded the Department of Defense's Joint Warfighting Cloud Capability Contract are beginning to test the implementation of DOD's zero-trust principles in a commercial cloud environment. The tests will see if achieving the Pentagon's target level of zero-trust is possible in the cloud. Andrew DiPolito is Global Enterprise Modernization Software and Support Program Director at Ironbow and former Air Force Chief Information Officer. In this discussion with my Scoop News Group colleague, Wyatt Cash, DiPolito explains how the department's zero trust strategy ties into the national defense strategy. So my assessment is that the zero trust strategy is so popular because it ties directly to the national defense strategy, which is the very foundation of the, where the DOD is headed. So looking at the national defense strategy of 2022, President Biden's opening preamble states that we're living in a decisive decade, one stamped by dramatic change in geopolitics, technology, economics, and environment. Our defense strategy that the United States pursues will set the department's course for decades to come. So when you look at zero trust, it fits perfectly with the national defense strategy because it too will set the cyber defense strategy for decades to come. So what President Biden is referring to is that competition with China, Russia, and other threats are significant to our nation. This means that the current way of defending our networks is not really gonna suffice. China, Russia, and others are extremely advanced in the cyber arena. That's, that's really not news to anyone, but we do have to double, redouble our efforts. In fact, if you truly subscribe to the tenets of zero trust, we're already behind the power curve because the adversary may or may not be within our networks. The question is to industry, how do we actually bridge that gap? How do we do it quickly? Obviously, this is a 10-year strategy, but there are some uh, enabling technologies and capabilities that we can apply in the short term, right? Whether it's identity management, endpoint security, data loss and prevention. So I would like to leave industry with that kind of question to think through. Are there things that we could do to make our uh, DOD networks safer in the short term? So another element to that is uh, communications with our partners and allies, right? So Miskin Ossenberger, who is the DAF CIO, talked about that point wonderfully in the, the Defense Scoop article dated 3rd of November, 2022. She talked about zero trust being able to kind of bridge that gap, which is really important. So when you look at um, how siloed our information is uh, within the DOD, not to mention with joint partners and looking at multinational efforts is really important. So one of the things that I want to talk about with zero trust is that, you know, it's a traditional castle moat um, methodology. And that, that form of protecting our networks is really, it's outdated, it's outmoded. 
you hear the, you know, the castle moat, the, the cookie analogy where it's very hard on the outside but soft in the inside. I like Maginot Line because what happened prior to World War II was what France did. They, um, uh, they defended their, their fortifications in the border between Germany and France prior to World War II. And they didn't realize that, uh, that Germany mastered the art of maneuver warfare. Well, I would describe that uh, cyber is today, it's, it's maneuver warfare. And it's impossible to gain cyber dominance. So in that environment, you need to make sure that you have that defensive capability that will actually defend each transaction. So that's why it's so important. And that's why it's so popular. Well, obviously, the concept of zero trust has been a driving force in security circles and in industry for many years now. Um, how is what DOD is trying to accomplish different um, from, say, the banking and financial industry where cyber attacks uh, also remain a constant threat? Yeah, that's a that's a really interesting question. So I, I would actually say that I don't think the technologies are really that similar, nor the strategies. So I'm going to play devil's advocate for a minute, right? So when you look at the banking industry, you look at the electrical grid, you look at the food and water supply, and theoretically, an attack on those industries would be just about as significant in terms of um, effects-based analysis or center of gravity analysis. Imagine if a nation-state actor took down our banking system. That'd be exceptionally decisive in terms of impacting national will and psyche. I would say, though, however, if you want to flip it a little bit, looking at the DOD, it's it's a little bit more complex. The relative size of our military, the millions of users, and most importantly, the classification of data, right? The grave loss of uh, that data, the impact on national security, right? You can't afford to have that happen. That's very important. I would say, in conclusion, though, I think that the DOD may be ahead in some areas, and I think well, very well suited, specifically looking at this uh, zero trust strategy by the CIO. Well, DOD's zero trust strategy, uh, much like OMB's efforts as well, covers the gamut of IT security issues, right? From identifying users and devices and applications to managing data and network activity. But looking from a point of view of the warfighter, I'm curious your thoughts on how will DOD's zero trust strategy really impact soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines? Oh, I love this question. As a former A6, this is this is this is my favorite question so far. So I think the question that delves into like really the heart of why zero trust is important to the Department of Defense, right? So um, obviously, the zero trust strategy focuses on access to data anywhere, anytime, agility, mobility, and cloud supported. When you look at it, the cloud is is even more important today, especially when you're talking about access to data for our warfighters. But ultimately, zero trust adds that security layer for each transaction and reduces the impact if you have individual breaches and, and damage containment. Now, taking a look at that, let's let's look at three use cases. The first is COVID, right? So it's really changed and it evolved our workforce. I would say that that's transparent to both the DOD and industry. Um, a little bit more difficult for DOD based on the necessity to be on station many times. But remote, remote work for critical mission sets is, is very important and zero trust is critical to that. Secondly, you look at um, mobility, right? So mobility is critical to warfighting. For the Department of the Air Force, what they've developed is a strategy called Agile Combat Employment, known as ACE. So what ACE does, the fundamental principle is you have your power projection platforms, which are your air bases, right, which are static in nature and what ACE allows you to do is is be able to rapidly disperse forces 
from those power projection platforms so you can actually safeguard your air assets and other critical assets and be able to continue to fight in an environment. And when you look at how Ukraine is using that, um, it's actually quite interesting, right? So uh, Ukraine had specific static air bases and they've been able to stay in the fight because they've been able to move their aircraft all over the place. So what's important to that, right, um, is you need a couple of key capabilities. Some of those capabilities include logistics, right? That has an IT element to it, security. But I would, I would suppose that command and control, which is heavily enabled by IT, it's actually a critical enabler, and then ISR, intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance, so you can actually get um, orders to your warfighters is critical. And Zero Trust enables those communications are secure, and they're, and they're actually provided with a high level of availability. Finally, I would say that one of the other critical capabilities is um, everyone's heard the term joint all domain command and control, known as JADC2. So JADC2 is a whole different way of fighting war. So what it is, is it's focused on, on all the different platforms being able to communicate seamlessly and very quickly so that you actually outpace your adversary. And that ties, that is all tied to the backbone of network infrastructure and the ability of zero trust because it allows you to communicate effectively, seamlessly, and in a secure fashion. And that allows you to outstrip your, um, your adversaries. Well, based on your experience in multiple industries, I'm also curious, what are some of the pitfalls that DOD and the federal government writ large should try to avoid as they continue uh, accelerating their efforts to achieve zero trust? That's a great question. I'd actually like to kind of flip it on its head and, and talk about the pitfalls, but talk about how the zero trust strategy for the DOD is actually making really good progress. So you have awareness and commitment and priorities, right? So according to the FedScoop article, almost 50% of respondents said that they're only generally aware of zero trust principles. That's a kind of a critical concern, right? So what's good is that cultural adoption is very important. And what's important and good news for the DODs in their recently released uh, zero trust strategy is that cultural adoption is the first of four key goals. They say it's the DOD personnel must be aware. They must understand, be committed to, and trained and from zero trust technologies and actually that environment. Why is that important? And I think that I, I tell you why it's important because it's where the strategy actually shines. It's because the workforce, not just in the cyber arena and IT community, IT professionals need to understand how zero trust is so important. They need to be trained on all levels. And it's not an easy task, but it is absolutely essential. So commitment across all functional areas, whether you're a pilot, whether you're a tanker, whether you're on a surface ship, whether you're a communicator, you need to understand these zero trust principles. It's not a gimmick. It's a framework and it's actually a process. In addition, there are many risks associated with adoption when you talk about performance barriers, right? So looking at zero trust, and you, and you move over to a new technology, sometimes things don't work out well. And in an age of why can't my computer work just the way it does at home, people need to understand that this is gonna take some commitment, there will be some stumbling blocks and it's not gonna be an inexpensive journey. Now, the second piece of that, the FedScoop article also said that 61% of respondents have some level of concern with prioritization. Well, why is that important? It's important because prioritization focuses on cost and budgeting. And we're talking about cutting costs, prioritization, and monetization of networks. You have to think about 
you know, some, some roadblocks to getting to the actual maturity of zero trust. And that's where the zero trust strategy tackles it head on. So it's a 10 year strategy. The DOD CIO is focusing on the planning, programming, budgeting, and execution process, which is a fancy way of saying that the DOD is going to commit long-term to making sure that it meets the framework. This is where I suggest it gets hard. So with so many competing priorities, take the Air Force for example, an aging aircraft fleet, you're looking at new space systems, intelligence surveillance reconnaissance is a very expensive endeavor, but critical, all critical endeavors, where does zero trust kind of fit within this? Now, so the strategy is solid. The key is making sure that it retains that, it retains that level of, of focus long-term. You can learn more about the Pentagon's cybersecurity strategy at fedscoop.com. Coming on Tuesday's episode of The Daily Scoop, four critical steps to protecting federal data. Marisol Cruz Kane from the Government Accountability Office tells me what those four steps are and how agencies can start making progress on them. That show debuts Tuesday afternoon at fedscoop.com and wherever you get your podcasts. Federal agencies are continuing to capitalize on cloud computing capabilities. While progress has been made, many organizations need more resources to accomplish their complex missions. In this conversation with Wyatt Cash, partner at IBM Consulting and former Air National Guard Enterprise architect Kevin Aylward and AWS's Hiram Perez discuss what practices help agencies move to the cloud more productively. The systematic approach to um, migration to the cloud, we're almost a decade into cloud computing now, and we're not really doing the one-offs anymore. We're taking a more holistic approach. And, you know, some of the things IBM has done is, you know, um, classified and sorted things by journeys you know, of the various types of applications. Federal agencies have, you know, a very large landscape, you know, sometimes tens of thousands of applications to move. So you really need treatment patterns and, you know, all that kind of, you know, rigor around um, classifications and automation in, in, in your migrations. Well, it certainly is a, a massive landscape to consider. Um, but can you maybe highlight a couple of examples of where and how those practices that you're talking about have made a meaningful difference to federal agencies attempting to migrate more of their work into the cloud? Yeah, so uh, several agencies have have taken the approach of kind of building, um, you know, kind of platform capabilities that, you know, embrace the open architectures that uh, both AWS and IBM support and become kind of a de facto platform for building new cloud scale applications on. So that is one pattern we see quite a bit of. And then another is, you know, landscapes of, like applications that, you know, have built landing zones and use automated tooling to really what we've seen in practice drive, you know, up to 30 to 40% of costs out of, you know, operations. And then Hiram, I'd love to hear from you a little as well. I know AWS, of course, has helped also a long list of agencies move their data and applications to the cloud. What additional practices have you seen that have really made a meaningful impact in helping agencies move to the cloud faster? 
Well, thank you very much for that question. So what I like to tell the agencies, uh, number one, make sure that you inform yourself before you go into doing any type of major transformation. These things are large and can be very complex. So before you make a decision of something that you want to do, take some time to really understand the information out there. And what I like to suggest to the agencies that they do is use the RFI process. I think it's a great uh, ability that agencies have to use the RFIs, request for information, to, to find out exactly what's going out there into the industry. Ask the, uh, uh, ask the companies, how do they do things? What are some of their best processes? And then that way you inform yourself on what is possible for you to be able to, uh, to do. And then once you've, you've gone through that, make sure that you identify a set methodology. A methodology is nothing more than a, a clear cut path for you to be able to achieve what you want to achieve. And there's very good methodologies out there. IBM has some excellent methodologies that you can use that will get you to your final destination. And these have been um, you know, tested. And then finally, make sure that you use a good system integrator. In, in reality, federal agencies will probably go through a major transformation, maybe only a handful of times. SI, systems integrators, they do this all the time. And they know the good, the bad, the ups and downs take advantage of utilizing a system integrator like IBM in order to be successful. And I think that those are very good recommendations to ensure success for your uh, transformation project. Absolutely. Well, Kevin, back to you. What would you say is different about cloud migrations for federal agencies today compared to a couple of years ago, let's say, and what recommendations would you offer to help agencies accelerate their efforts now going forward? Yeah, thanks. So I think because um, a lot of agencies have really looked, you know, uh, across a wide landscape for for lessons and, and picking up on some of what Hiram said, you know, more and more we see commercial applicability of what commercial firms are doing and how they're transforming that really government agencies can do the same thing. Um, as we talked about a little bit earlier, starting with a collection like the IBM Cloud uh, Accelerators, um, you know, where you have a large classification of kind of, you know, apps and, and patterns for treatments is, is a good first step, but also amplifying what, what um, Hiram was saying, really developing a cloud technical operating model, right? You know, how I'm going to operate this in the cloud because as you start getting into redeveloping applications, you know, SREs, all of these new terminologies are things that the, the government agencies really have to sort of remake themselves, you know, for day two operations, right? And Hiram, I just asked the same question of you. What, what's different from a couple of years ago and what would you recommend agencies consider doing going forward? So yeah, so so many things change so fast in, in IT. So so many things change very quickly. So my suggestion would be, with, with that in mind, that things change very differently, and we have things that are that are new. It, it seems like almost uh, every every quarter at least is make sure that you think about culture change within your organization. Make sure that you have people who have been trained in the latest. You know. Uh, the latest methodologies, the latest processes, the latest capabilities. So whenever that SI is done uh, working with you and the migration has been completed, you're not left in a lurch, right? Uh, you, you have invested the time and the effort to train your people, 
to understand the technology and you have created a, a cloud center of excellence or something similar to that. So whenever the uh, SI uh, terminates the, the work for you, you have all of the skills, all of the knowledge that you're gonna need to be able to move forward and, and be successful. That would be my, my final suggestion for the agencies why so they can be successful for the long-term. Uh, lastly, gentlemen, I'm uh, intrigued, uh, you know, IBM and AWS in some regards uh, could be seen as competitors. And yet here you are working together and uh, helping federal agencies advance their work. Talk to me a little bit about the advantages for IBM, let's say, of working with AWS. And then Hiram, I'd love to hear your view as well. Kevin? Yeah, so uh, we just got back uh, from Am Amazon's annual reInvent conference in Las Vegas. IBM won the Global Innovation of the Year partner. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a big, you know, a big change for us, right? This is, you know, the company is rebranded over the time. We've, we've executed a lot of changes and it's really ecosystem centric, you know, consulting firm at this point. Uh, you know, with the purchase of Red Hat, we've, you know, push that out. And a lot of really cool things that IBM is doing now are really focused on AWS. So there's mainframe modernization and integration with AWS. There have been major announcements about that. Uh, almost, you know, a, a large, large percentage of IBM proprietary software is now available in the AWS marketplace. And we have, you know, um, 16 or 18,000, I forget what the number is today. It's an ever-increasing number of AWS certified uh, consultants around the globe. So it's a real radical change in IBM. And, and you know, it's been noticed from the CEOs of both companies on down. And it's really how we're driving. It's all about, you know, client focus, right? And if you know anything of Amazon, right, that is totally in lockstep with, you know, their ethos. Hiram? Yeah, thank, thank you, Kevin. And, and very well stated. I mean, IBM has been helping companies transform and implement technology for over a hundred years now. Uh, they know technology better than anybody else, and they have helped, if not thousands, ten thousands of organizations, both in the government and in the commercial sector and globally, to adopt new technologies. So the the wealth of knowledge, ability, and skill that IBM brings forward is is without par. And then you combine that capability with the, uh, the, the cloud service provider that AWS is, we're the primary cloud provider out there in the world. So in reality, this combination to me is the winning combination of the, uh, of the top organizations uh, globally providing IT transformation services and cloud services is a winning combination. Sounds, certainly sounds like it. Well, thank you both, uh, Hiram and Kevin, for joining us today and sharing your respective uh, perspectives on uh, migrating to the cloud and how federal agencies in particular can really benefit from that. So thank you both for joining us today. Thank you, Wyatt. You can learn more about cloud migrations at fedscoop.com. The Daily Scoop podcast is available on all podcast platforms. If you've already rated the podcast on your platform of choice, thanks so much. High ratings and good reviews of the show help more people to find it. The Daily Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney and Carlin Fisher help put the show together and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. We'll talk to you again Tuesday afternoon. Until then, I'm your host, Billy Mitchell. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>